0: to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear how a pulmonary and critical care physician at an Oakland hospital is dealing with the coronavirus pandemic.
1: So we're trying to figure out how do we triage patients in a smart way? How do we determine who can be you know, on self-isolation at home, who needs to come in to get a formal test, who, who should come in for even their regular clinic visit?
0: I'm Lila Lahood, in for Laura Wenis. And this is Civic. I'm Laila Lahood, publisher of the San Francisco Public Press, filling in for Laura Wenis. The United States has declared a national emergency because of the coronavirus pandemic and ordered hospitals to activate emergency preparedness plans. Dr. Monica Bargava is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Oakland's Highland Hospital and joins us to talk about what kinds of coronavirus complications we might see for people who have compromised lung function, in particular for those who are lower income or have other challenges like insecure housing. Monica, welcome to Civic. Thank you for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. So first question, and we know this is on, on everyone's mind, How concerned are you about the coronavirus, and what are you telling your patients?
1: Well, Lala, that's a good question. I would have to say that I am quite concerned about the coronavirus. As a physician, I've been through a number of pandemics, including SARS, Ebola, and others. And this one is particularly concerning to me because of how contagious the virus is.
0: So what are the symptoms you you look for that tell you that a patient should be tested for COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of symptoms that people have. Unfortunately, they're very nonspecific, and so it can be hard to pin down who exactly to test. The most common symptoms associated with this virus are dry cough and fever. But other symptoms have been described as well, including general malaise muscle aches even diarrhea
0: okay so it's it's a range and it's it's not as clear cut well this points us to a cold this points us to pneumonia this points us to or excuse me this points us to flu or this points us to coronavirus it's it's not it's not clear right at the outset
1: it's, unfortunately it's not very clear just you know if you go into an ER a lot of people say they have cough and fever but i think what we're trying to determine is was this individual in a country that was particularly affected by the virus? Um, were they in close contact with someone else who is a documented virus patient? But increasingly, even these ways of approaching the problem are limited because the virus is in the community. So you don't need to have gone to China or Italy or anywhere um, to be diagnosed with this virus.
0: Mm-hmm. And why why is it that this coronavirus causes so many cases of viral pneumonia?
1: That's a really good question. We are not 100% sure, but for some reason, this coronavirus, which some people refer to as the novel coronavirus, mm-hmm. one, one that hasn't been seen before, is particularly inflammatory. It just generates a lot of inflammation in the body, and a lot of people's immune systems can't handle it. And as you can imagine, it's particularly damaging to people with underlying lung disease.
0: I want to talk a little bit about about where you work. What are the demographics of the patients you typically see at Highland Hospital, which which is a county hospital in Alameda County? So I should probably say that about
1: 30% of Alameda County lives at or below a basic standard for economic self-sufficiency. And our patients come from from that segment. These are folks... Yeah, these are folks who rely on food stamps, uh, Medi-Cal, et cetera, just to get through their week.
0: So those are your patients in in any given week, a regular week. Those those are typically the people who you are seeing at Highland Hospital. Yes. Now, because... Highland is a county hospital. Are you expecting the same population to come in because of coronavirus, or perhaps a a uh, a different population or a different subset within within the group you you typically see?
1: Well, one thing we know about the coronavirus is that I should I should make a sort of statement up front because we're also trying to reduce panic in the community, which is mm-hmm. really important. So, eighty percent of patients who have the coronavirus tend to have a mild or moderate course and may not even need medical intervention, just like self-isolation and supportive care. About 20% of the patients that contract the virus, we estimate, again, all of these are very rough estimates, will require significant medical intervention, including hospitalization. So what we know for sure is that people with what we call in medicine a comorbidity Mm -hmm. Or having any other pre-existing illness puts you at greater risk for not only contracting this virus, but for having a more severe course. So at Highland, I do expect to see our, our regular sort of patient population, but also I expect to see a lot more patients come in with respiratory symptoms who have other significant illnesses, including high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, or other uh, lung diseases
0: okay, so th- so there are you're anticipating you're anticipating things because of what's going on now, and are you changing courses of treatment for pulmonary patients because of what you know might be coming?
1: Yes, well, I'll tell you what the biggest situation I think we're dealing with right now is figuring out who should even come to the hospital to get evaluated mm-hmm. Because the last thing you want is a very crowded clinic room or emergency room with a number of sick and highly contagious people all in close proximity. So we're trying to figure out how do we triage patients in a smart way. How do we determine who can be, you know, on self-isolation at home? Who needs to come in to get a formal test? Um, who, who should come in for even their regular clinic visit? So. All of these things are a little bit up in the air, but we are developing a plan as we see.
0: So you might ask people who are coming in for routine visits to postpone a couple of months until this, until the pet, I, I don't know, how, how long do you <laughs> ask them to postpone the routine visits oh. at this point?
1: Oh, Lila, that's a million-dollar question. There are estimates uh, that this virus will be with us for quite a while. Even if we institute the number one protective measure, which is social distancing, and we can talk about that a little bit. Even if we institute that, the thought is that this virus could have a significant presence in our healthcare system for anywhere from six months to a year.
0: Six months to a year is a really long time. Yes. I mean I'm talking to yes. people who are thinking, oh we'll we'll just move our event till next month and then things will be fine. What you're right. saying is we need to be looking on a much longer time horizon.
1: Exactly. We really, really do because we don't know how long this will last and how effective our protective measures will be. So right now, I'm calling my clinic patients for next week and trying to triage them and say, who's a stable patient who's doing okay? Maybe I can just, you know, talk to them as a telephone visit as opposed Mm -hmm. to bringing them in and then potentially exposing them to the waiting room.
0: Right. Right. I have so many questions. <laughs> so what, you, you, know, so you said, well, here's one. Do you and your team have the equipment and support you need for the pandemic?
1: You know, I think we have as much as any other hospital would in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not personally part of our task force that is addressing this pandemic, but I know there is a committee that meets probably multiple times a day every day. People are in close communication. Um, I know all of our folks in leadership positions are communicating with the CDC every day. So I would say more broadly, the problem in American hospitals in general is just we don't have enough tests. Mm-hmm. So I can't go and test every single person with a cough and a fever you know, in the community, which would be ideal, frankly. Really, we're trying to now differentiate is this cough and fever a sounds like a, a kind of a COVID-19 cough and fever? Or is this one that could be due to a, another source of pneumonia? Because we can't uh, forget that people get regular illnesses even during a pandemic. So right. They could have a bacterial pneumonia. They could have an asthma attack. They could have all sorts of other problems. One issue is that we have a healthcare system that's very fragmented, That billing for each visit is important, especially to county hospitals, because our revenue depends on it and our ability to care for the broader population depends on it. So I do hope in the
0: coming weeks we come up with a plan to help hospitals that will be hardest hit. You mentioned social distancing. We've been hearing this term. How should we interpret this and what are you telling your patients and just members of the community? What, What should they do in terms of social distancing?
1: That's a great question, Lila. So social distancing basically means keeping your distance between yourself and another human being, preferably six feet or more. So I tell most of my patients that, especially the ones who are very fragile with advanced lung disease, to try not to leave the house if possible. Um, What this means is places like crowded grocery stores, crowded restaurants, cafes, etc., these are all places where folks can be exposed to the virus simply because the virus is highly contagious. And we think right now that the primary mode of transmission is through respiratory droplets. So person A coughs, the virus is in the air, someone else breathes it in.
0: hmm what will you be watching for in your practice to tell you the pandemic is either somewhat under control or is spiraling into something more urgent? or will, will you be able to see in terms of the numbers people are of people coming in, or how how will you know that things are starting to calm down??
1: I think right now it's sort of hard to tell that just based on our clinics because we're a lot of people are staying away because they don't want to expose themselves to other sick patients. Um, I think we'll know it's under control mostly by tracking local and county-level data and country-level data, frankly. We'll look at the total number of new infections per day, and uh, we'll look at the severity of the illness. And I know every day we're tracking the number of patients who have respiratory problems who are hospitalized. So I think looking at data at the hospital level, community level, and nationally, We'll piece it together to figure out uh, what direction the pandemic is heading
0: How many patients do you typically see, and how much do you expect the caseload to increase on because of the pandemic?
1: We sort of see a standard number of patients in our clinic per afternoon, which is eight patients. Um, I'd, I'd say the biggest change I'm seeing is in our ICU population. We have a lot more patients who are attached to ventilators now. That may not necessarily be due to the pandemic, but uh, some of it might be. We are expecting an increase, but it's really hard to tell right now how much of an increase we'll see.
0: So you mentioned ventilators, and in the news we've heard concerns about uh, not having enough ventilators or not having enough ventilators in the right places. Is, is this something you're, you're concerned about? I, you, you already know what it's like to have constraints. You can't give lung transplants to everyone who needs them for a whole right. host of reasons. Right. Can you talk a little, bit, a little bit about this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I follow a lot of the international critical care blogs, which have been pretty hard to read this week. Critical care physicians all over the world are writing about what they're dealing with uh, in the midst of this pandemic. And uh, you may have read a lot of the stories coming out of Italy, that doctors were running out of beds for critically ill patients, and they just didn't have enough equipment. Now, fortunately, right now, we do have the capacity to take care of folks who are so sick that they need to depend on a ventilator. But, of course, we're planning ahead, because we certainly haven't reached the peak of the ap- epidemic. or excuse me, pandemic. And we're going to be needing more ventilators than we have now. So we're trying to figure out, how do we safely house two patients in the same room? How do we make sure that all of the infection control precautions are followed? How do we make sure we have enough ventilators? So a lot of people are working on this right now. Um, It's a real system-wide kind of issue.
0: So clearly, you're already thinking about how to prepare and what kinds of decisions you, you might have to make. How do healthcare providers prepare emotionally to make these kinds of hard choices?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if a physician can ever be truly prepared to make those types of decisions. It's pretty harrowing when it gets to that point. I have had experiences with those types of ethical dilemmas because, as part of my residency, I worked abroad in Botswana at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And forty percent of the country at that point was HIV positive. They simply did not have enough oxygen tanks for everyone who was dying. And it was really terrifying to walk into a hospital ward with uh, twenty young men, all with full-blown AIDS, all with terrible pneumonias, and you have four oxygen tanks, and you're trying to figure out who to give it to. It's, and it's, it's so hard.
0: That sounds um, wrenching. I mean, how do you how do you even make that kind of decision?
1: Well, I mean, we do have a precedent for rationing precious resources, and that's in the transplant community for instance. So, patients who need a lung transplant go through or frankly, any organ transplant go through a very rigorous process because these organs and all of the medical care associated with transplantation is so expensive and the process is so complicated that a patient can only really get an organ if they meet a whole host of criteria. So I wouldn't call it rationing per se, but I would call it sort of allocating resources in the most efficient way. So in a lot of situations, we have to figure out who would benefit most from this resource. Often it's patients who are younger, Whose cardiovascular systems are still intact, who we think have a good shot at recovery and, and doing well, so I believe in Italy they are rationing certain critical care resources by age. I really hope that's something we don't even have
0: to think about. That's that's serious. That's a, those are those are serious choices, and and I I can't imagine being put in that position to have to make those choices. Yeah, it's it's hard to think about. We'll get back to this conversation with Dr. Monica Bargava in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press.
1: KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other public press members who have made our work possible for 10 years.
0: Let's hear more from Dr. Monica Bargava about how she and other doctors at Oakland's Highland Hospital are preparing for more cases of COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens with people who don't have secure housing and need major surgery, whether it's a lung transplant or other significant treatment?
1: That is a really important question, Lila, and I'll tell you why it's so important because we are, I feel as a society, we are not doing enough to prepare people's lives to receive medical treatment. Because let's just think about everything you need even to get like a knee replacement, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. If you not only need to have the surgery, you then need to go to all these follow up visits. You need to go to physical therapy. You need trans, transportation. Um, you need safe housing where there's not a lot of stairs. You need someone living with you because let's say your knee gets infected and you need to go to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. You need someone to watch you and take you in. So there's so many things. That need to happen in order for someone to participate in our healthcare system and very often our patients don't have those resources to even participate and i think that we try like for instance you know medicaid might offer some home nursing assistance or some transportation to to visits but there are a lot of people who fall through the cracks and don't qualify it's really hard to deliver medical care to a resource limited population. and It's really hard to, to be poor, period, and have any kind of health care
0: problem. Right, right. Or uh, uh, people with, who are lower income or who have insecure housing or are homeless. And, you know, in light of all these existing challenges, what, um, what are you thinking about in terms of serving people who face, who, who are vulnerable mm-hmm. in these ways in light mm-hmm. of the coronavirus?
1: Poverty is a huge compounder of illness in all ways imaginable. Um, not just access to care, but, you know, folks who are poor often don't have a lot of the basics that we take for granted. Like, for instance, with the coronavirus, we're telling people to stay home and not go to work. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, they work hourly jobs, and if they don't go to work, they don't eat. Right. So they're putting themselves and their communities at risk because they don't have the option of not going to work. That's something difficult. The second thing we're encountering is a lot of our patients live in very close quarters. There are, you know, six people living in a one bedroom. Mm-hmm. When we tell folks again to stay at home or uh, self isolate, it's much easier to self isolate if you're wealthy and you have a large residence. Right. Um, it's harder for, if you're poor. I think we're still figuring out right now how do we make recommendations about isolation when it's so hard
0: to even have space. We're we're discussing so many layers of complexity here. We're talking yeah, about regular people facing this this coronavirus pandemic and then we're talking about people who have underlying health conditions and then we're talking about about people who live in challenging housing situations or have, ch- have challenging work situations, this is really complicated.
1: Yeah, it's, it's complicated socially, economically, and medically.
0: Yes. What advice do you have for anyone who might be listening who has either they have compromised lungs or a family member with that kind of condition? What are special precautions they should be taking in light of the coronavirus pandemic?
1: I would say they should follow most of the things that we're recommending for the general population. I might, to a higher degree, self-quarantine a bit. I Mm -hmm. don't know if that's an official recommendation yet from the CDC, but from a common sense standpoint, I think, unfortunately, staying at home as much as possible or in a safe and controlled environment is really important, simply because, as I mentioned before, this is one of the most contagious viruses we've encountered as respiratory physicians and so being out and about in the community uh does pose a risk i think if i would tell these folks um to touch base with your respiratory physician so if you especially if you're immunosuppressed or you know you're on medications that might make it harder for you to fight off this infection talk to talk to your doctor about whether you should even be going in for routine visits mm-hmm. and what would be the criteria for You know, seeking urgent medical attention.
0: That makes sense. So, seeking, seeking, seeking the guidance before you need it.
1: Yes. Like, so, so let's get ahead of this. So, so I would say, you know, self quarantining to a certain degree. Number two, if you are self quarantining and you live alone, see if you have a friend or neighbor or family member who could maybe just check in on you by phone every day. Mm -hmm. I think that would be helpful. I think touching base with your physician ahead of time to say, you know, if I get a fever, what should I do? I think that's kind of a good plan to develop. Um, If you're a patient and you have COPD or asthma and you take inhalers, maybe talking to your doctor and making sure you have a one-month supply of these medications, I think that's a good idea. And, you know, to also touch base, if, if someone is on home oxygen, touching base with your oxygen company and making sure that there's no... Um, barriers to your receiving it
0: for the next you know few months,
1: I think all of those things would be helpful.
0: And what should people do if they don't fall into this initial category? Maybe people who are experiencing respiratory distress for the first time. if this is not you don't have a pre pre underlying condition and this is new for you and you're experiencing respiratory distress, what should you do?
1: Uh, so the first thing I would do, again, I would tell most people to, to definitely touch base with your primary care physician. Hopefully everyone has one. But the symptoms I would be most concerned about are a combination of cough, fever, and shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. If you have those symptoms and they're mild to moderate, contact your physician and see if this is something they can handle over the phone or through a telemedicine-type visit. They might have you just sort of self-quarantine for 14 days. I think if your symptoms are more significant or you're having a a fairly difficult time breathing, going to an urgent care clinic or emergency room is warranted. But again, I think when your symptoms are milder, talking to your primary care physician would be very helpful to develop a plan moving forward.
0: So do you have any other advice for, for people who don't currently have problems, but want to think about protecting good lung function? What should we be? Are there things that we could be doing now? Is is there anything we can do preventatively?
1: I mean, it's a great question, Lila. I wish there were something in particular to do to protect healthy lungs, other than, frankly, the social distancing. I think mm-hmm. that is the number one most important thing. And that's a very hard and painful thing to do. We are social creatures. We are meant to live interdependently. But for the next four to eight weeks, we need to see how the numbers play out. And until we figure out where this pandemic is going, I think it's important to follow precautions and to avoid large public gatherings and to be really cautious about being out and about in public.
0: What can we do to prepare? And then, what happens if the infrastructure in a particular locality starts to be overwhelmed?
1: Well, not to be a bit of a downer, but the time to plan <laughs> would have been, you know, a year ago. Mm. Um, we had a, we had someone in charge of pandemic policies, at the federal level who was, you know, fired by President Trump, and that office was shut down. So a lot of our resources that we put into disaster and pandemic planning um, really aren't there. I would say right now what hospitals are doing is I I think most hospitals have some sort of task force assembled with leadership, pulmonary physicians, et cetera, to track the pandemic, to find ways to effectively screen people and to figure out those. I think one tricky question is when people come to the emergency room or come to an urgent care setting. How do we sort folks out so there's not a lot of mixing between the general population and people with respiratory symptoms? So I think forming these task forces that are multidisciplinary is really important, and I think every hospital, to my knowledge, every hospital in the area is doing that.
0: Is there anything you would like people in the community to do that would support the work of healthcare providers at this time?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing I would do, Lila, is Number one, no one needs to panic. It's a stressful situation and we need to take appropriate precautions, but panicking won't help things. So I think trying to manage our feelings about it as much as possible is is a good thing. I know that's really hard, mm-hmm. um, but I that's one thing that would be helpful. Number two, I think taking it seriously because I've encountered a whole range of individuals in my neighborhood, like when I talk to my neighbors, for instance, some people are, you know, hoarding one month's worth of, you know, food and paper towel, et cetera. And other people are kind of blowing it off and saying, oh, it's like the flu, you know, no big deal. I would say it is a big deal. We should pay attention to it and follow updates from the CDC. They have uh, on their website daily updates, so I think following that and just using common sense precautions like avoiding large gatherings, social distancing, of course, washing our hands regularly because we know that this virus can live on various surfaces. We don't know exactly what the rate of transmission is, like if you touch a surface and you touch your face. We're not completely sure about how uh, intense a mode of transmission that is, but I think washing our our hands very carefully, very often, would be helpful. I think I guess I would summarize my advice as take the virus seriously, but try not to panic if possible. Get updates from your physician and from the CDC as you're able, and then practice social distancing and hand washing.
0: That was Dr. Monica Bargava, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Oakland's Highland Hospital. I'm Laila LaHood, and you've been listening to Civic.
1: Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Host and reporter, Laura Wennis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. The publisher of the Public Press is Laila LaHood. Executive director, Michael Stoll. Director of Membership and Community, Daphne Magnawa.